Good day to all of you. Welcome back. Luke chapter 19. I'm going to sing your praises today. You've made it through 19 days, 19 chapters, just a few more to go, and it's the good stuff. I know it's all good stuff, but we're coming up on the crucifixion. We're coming up on the resurrection and the ascension. Uh, Today, we'll be watching Jesus go into Jerusalem and the triumphant entry, the triumphal entry. Oh, it's going to be great. I'm going to sing your praises because you have been doing such a great job. You're staying up with the reading as best as you can, right? Maybe things have been out of order. That's okay. Stick with it. Keep doing it. I want to encourage you. Read that word. Even after we're done in these next few days, read that word. Praise God for his work among you. That's actually what we're going to be talking about today. While I'm praising you, we're praising God working through you. How do you praise God? Might be kind of a silly question, but isn't he a God who is worthy to be praised? That's actually what we're going to find in this chapter. We're going to see uh, a lot of different ways to respond uh, to God's goodness and who he is. We're going to see proper and good ways of responding as well as some not so good ways of responding. Uh, let's kick it off. Let's go. Cue transitional music here. I guess I don't have any. That's okay. Je- uh, Jesus and Zacchaeus. I could sing Zacchaeus was a wee little man, uh, but I won't do that. In fact, it's kind of hard to read chapter 19 without putting it to song. Um, if you did it, good job. You're better than me. I'm not going to sing today. I'm not going to put you through that misery. Uh, but Zacchaeus, uh, some things that we know about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is a uh, rather wealthy individual. We know that because, well, he's a tax collector, but it says he's a chief tax collector. I was doing some reading. They say you don't really find that phrase together anywhere else in scripture or really in a lot of historical documents. It doesn't show up. Chief tax collector. That means he's way up there, ahead honcho, probably making a ton of money. In fact, it does say that he was rich, verse 2. So this guy is, is just really wealthy, right? Now, when we see this, we're thinking, wait, Hasn't Jesus been talking a lot about this, right? You can't serve both God and money, right? There's the rich young ruler where Jesus says to go and sell off everything that he owns and follow him. So why is it that Jesus is going to be going into this place, into Jericho, just outside of Jerusalem? And why is he going to hang out with Zacchaeus? I thought we had a little bit of an issue here uh, with people who are wealthy and uh, again, though. It's not so much the wealth, it's the love of the wealth. And also, Zacchaeus is going to respond a little bit differently to Jesus than the Pharisees and scribes are. What's the difference? Well, simple. Jesus is coming into town and Zacchaeus is seeking Jesus out. He wants to be a part of Jesus. He wants to go to Jesus. In some way, he's heard about Jesus and he wants to be in his presence. Can't though. He's too short. He's not tall. So he climbs up that sycamore tree. I almost sang it, but I didn't. He climbs up in the sycamore tree. See, unlike the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus. He's not looking to trick Jesus. He wants to see Jesus. That's the funny thing about it, though. Jesus calls out to Zacchaeus, come on down. I'm going to stay with you today. And there you see it. It says they grumbled. 
We see the Pharisees doing the same thing in chapter 15 before the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the prodigal son, that they're grumbling because Jesus is eating with sinners. See, the grumbling, this is kind of reminiscent of what was happening in the Old Testament when they were wandering through the wilderness. Right before they got into the promised land, the Israelites were grumbling. How appropriate then that right before Jesus comes into Jerusalem, on the outskirts of Jerusalem and Jericho, we see that there is grumbling going on. It seems like there's constant grumbling when it comes to what God wants to do versus what the people want God to do. But the grumbling isn't going to stop Jesus from working. See, he is going to a man's house who is a sinner. That's why he comes. See, it's the same thing that we've heard earlier in Luke. We have this repetition here of why Jesus comes. He comes for those who are sinners, those who need him. That's why Jesus comes. Yes, we see that Zacchaeus is a rather wealthy individual, but we see that spiritually he is poor. And I love it, right? He has this great response. He doesn't want to give away all of his stuff in order to have Jesus. But he gives away things as a response to who Jesus is. This Lord is here before me. As a result, this is what I'm going to do. Half of my goods I'm going to give to the poor. And if I've ever messed up or taken stuff from people I shouldn't have, I'm going to restore it times four. See, this is how he praises Jesus. This is how he glorifies God by giving. Some of you are probably thinking that, right? When I said, how do you praise God? Some of you are probably thinking, well, I put money in the offering plate. That's not bad, right? We don't give out of obligation. It is a cheerful giving. Look at the blessings that you have given me, Lord, that I'm able to give out of my blessings back to you, knowing full well that you're going to continue to supply even more. Zacchaeus knows that God is going to continue to supply things for him. He can give it all away. He doesn't have to worry uh, about God taking care of him. He knows that God will. He's going to praise God for his good work through Jesus by giving. And I hope you all do as well. But this takes us to the parable of the minas. Now, a lot of times when we look at this, the 10 minas, it's easy to get caught up in the stewardship idea of it. And yeah, you can talk about the stewardship of it, but there's a whole lot more going on here. I, w- I think that I would tend to agree with um, Dr. Just in the commentary when he says the stewardship stuff is really secondary compared to what really is going on here. And that has to do with the rejection of Jesus as the king. Because it starts off by saying, as they heard these things. So as Jesus was talking about salvation coming to the son of Abraham, knowing that this was all going on, all these things are being said. He tells them this parable because, it says, because he was near Jerusalem. And they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So things weren't going to go the way that a lot of people thought, whether you were like a Pharisee or whether you were one of Jesus' disciples. It's not like he's going to march into Jerusalem and all of a sudden all the armies of the world are going to bow down to this new son of David. That's not the kind of kingdom that he has come to usher in, right? His kingdom is eternal. But they don't understand that yet. In fact, they won't, right? Not until the Holy Spirit comes on them at Pentecost. But this is allowing for us to see kind of what's going on before Jesus gets in. 
So some other key notes that we should talk about as we look at this parable is that it says a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Of course, this applies to Jesus who comes a long way, doesn't he? And of course, he is of noble birth, so the kingdom definitely is his. So he calls his servants to be in charge of these minas, right? Engage in business until I come. And that's when you can have this kind of conversation about the stewardship, uh, how we glorify God with how, uh, with what he blesses us with. But it goes on to say that some citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to reign over us. And then, of course, we have this whole conversation about the minus. Some have 10, some have five, some have one. And what do they do with it? Those who have 10, double it. The ones who have five, double it. Uh, and the one that just has the one, what does he do? Well, he doesn't do anything. Right? We can talk about the 10 and the five and how it's probably referring to the disciples and how they go out and proclaim the kingdom of God. Fruit comes forth from their labor. But then you have those who reject the kingdom, which is who? Well, that's pretty easy, right? That's that's the Pharisees, that's the Sadducees, that's the scribes. They don't like what Jesus has to offer. They're rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. You're not the kind of Messiah that fits our understanding of what the Messiah is supposed to do. Give us another one. I mean, this really is an outright rejection for what Jesus has come to do. But see, here's the reality of it. Whether they're rejecting him or not, he is the king. He is coming. And for us who are in Advent, when he talks about how he is going to come back again and take away from those who have not continued to glorify him with their gifts, we understand that he is going to come back for us. Not that we are the perfect stewards, but we know that he has entrusted them to us and we continue to do our best to praise him with all that we have, whether it be our voice, whether it be our money, whether it be our time, whether it be our talents. Thankful that he saved us by his good work and how he has brought us into the kingdom. But you can kind of see, though, how uh, this is playing out into the narrative. If you're looking at the parable of the tin miners by themselves, you could see how this would really be a stewardship kind of focus here. But when you look at it within the narrative, you really see that Jesus is really letting the Pharisees know, look, this is about you. I'm here. You're rejecting me. And in the end, it doesn't really matter. Because I'm coming, whether you like it or not. And that actually takes us into that very point, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Where from chapter 9 on, if you remember way back in chapter 9, wow, that was a long time ago, wasn't it? Uh, John chapter 9, we talked about how Jesus now has his face set towards Jerusalem. This is what he seeks to do. He is journeying towards Jerusalem where the journey is about to come to an end. But he does so through this entry, right? This uh, Palm Sunday passage. Now, we love the Palm Sunday passage, right? It gets you really excited uh, for Good Friday. Oh, don't want to skip Monday, Thursday. Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and Easter Sunday. But you certainly do see that while Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, uh, he, he's coming to be the king, but nobody really understands what kind of king he's supposed to be. I mean, they think they know, they kind of know if they're a disciple, but they don't totally get it, even though Jesus has made all of these sacrificial predictions. 
And the Pharisees definitely don't think he is the one that's coming to be king. So, you know, you have all kinds of people expecting Jesus to be certain things, but really none of them are right. Jesus comes to do what Jesus is supposed to do. And that's the work of the Father. But one thing I do like in making this connection, and you can really only do this through Luke's gospel, is how do we begin this journey? How did we begin? Do you remember? We began by talking about Zechariah. Of course, it was about John, but John coming through Zechariah. Remember, Zechariah means the Lord remembers. And so we have this beautiful quote from the Old Testament book of Zechariah, the Lord remembers, where Jesus is coming in on a colt tide, right? So what I love about this is that we have this beginning of the gospel with the Lord remembering. That's what Zechariah means. And Jesus is going to be coming into Jerusalem because the Lord remembers his promise. And that's what we should be thinking about during this Advent season, is that we have a God who remembers his promises. It's not just a one-time thing. So everything that Jesus says with regards to this book and what he says he's going to do, he does. And even the things that he hasn't fully completed yet, like come back, we know he's going to complete it because the Lord remembers his promises. All right, so Zechariah talks about this, the uh, the colt tide, right? No one's ever sat on it. Royalty, Jesus coming in, and everybody starts shouting, right? Blessed is the king who comes in the, la- in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But of course, some don't like this. You have the Pharisees. No, rebuke your disciples. See, you're entering our territory now. That's probably what they're thinking. The temple's our domain. We know you're going to be headed there. Jerusalem is the holy city. This is where we are in charge. But little do they realize this is God's holy city and God in the flesh is standing right in front of them. But they're trying to teach Jesus, (laughs) trying to teach the teacher. Rebuke your disciples. What they're saying is incorrect. You got to play by our rules. And Jesus gives that famous response. I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. That's interesting because don't you remember what John says, John the Baptist in chapter three? Do not begin to say for yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. From these stones. See, the stones would cry out. The, the children of Abraham are being raised up. And it's not those you'd necessarily think. It's tax collectors and sinners. They're the ones crying out. These are the children of Abraham. It's Gentiles, you and I, 2,000 years later, who are proclaiming the goodness of God. We have been grafted into this great promise. We are children of Abraham by faith. See, the answer is that it lies with Jesus. The Pharisees have it all wrong. They're out fighting against Jesus while they should be accepting him. Well, Jesus weeps for Jerusalem, right? The holy city is eventually going to be in ruins. It's not going to be about the temple anymore because the holy temple is going to be Jesus himself. And then as Paul will tell us, the Holy Spirit will reside in us. So we are God's temples as well. But interestingly enough, one of, the th- uh, one of the first things that Jesus does when he comes into Jerusalem is he goes to the temple, right? It's time to cleanse it. And uh, Luke's 
section of uh, this particular uh, pericope is much shorter than some of the others. Um, he goes in. It says he drives out those who sold. Um, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, the whole idea of that sacrificial system was set up uh, for a reason. It wasn't bad for them to be selling uh, some of these sacrifices so that people who are journeying from far away could be a part of it. That's not the issue. The issue is that it's been, well, turned into a den of robbers. People are selling other things and they're also uh, have some crooked balances. So the, the money changers there were doing a pitiful job of being fair. They're out to make money. They're out for a profit. They're making a profit off worship with the Holy One. I mean, this is going to be a big no-no. That's why Jesus gets upset. So Jesus goes and cleanses the temple. But what we are definitely going to find in the next uh, couple of chapters is that the temple doesn't matter anymore because we know that curtain will be torn in two, that the holy temple is Jesus himself. We're going to see it come to ruins, but then be raised again. So let's continue on. Good job. We keep praising God through our reading. We praise him through our voices as what's happening here in the text, but we also praise him uh, with all the gifts that he has blessed us with, our money, our time, talents. Uh, we praise him continuously. I pray that you continue to do that as well. Hey, I'm enjoying it. We press on. Chapter 20 tomorrow. See ya.